Welcome to the Your Houston Podcast. This is your host, Nicholas Hall, here with my co-host, Mario Castillo. How are you doing, Mario? I'm doing fantastic. That's great. We have a phenomenal guest today. Uh, but first, since this is our first ever Your Houston Podcast. That's right. Uh, Your Houston, the organization. Mario, tell me about it. Well, it's the organization uh, that I happen to work for uh, as the executive director, and it's a local quality of life organization uh, that's founded to educate and engage Houstonians around issues that are important to them uh, and give them the tools to make progress on those issues. I think it's phenomenal. I, I think it's so great that I'm part of the board and I'm, I'm happy that you include me. Uh, and we have with us today our guest, our featured guest, Bill Baldwin. Uh, he is the chair of the board for your Houston. Before we get to Bill, uh, I'd first like to say a few words about his accomplishments. You know, Bill, uh, thank you for being here. Thank how, you. How are you doing? I'm doing great today. Thank you. Uh, so we're here, and really, you know, I, I was doing some research, really looking into what can we do for a proper bio for Bill Baldwin, uh, and and Mario got this list together that I think is just phenomenal. I mean, I think if, if, if you really, and you can go to har.com, I believe, and, and pull the bio and look at it and see all the amazing things, and they are amazing. You are the director of the Houston Realtors Information Services governing body. You, so you are the director of HAR. One of five. One of five. You... We're the director for the Freeman's Town Conservancy. Still there. Still there. You're the president of the Houston Heights Association. Formerly. I was the longest serving president, but I am now not the president, which glad to have a little break. You're the mayoral appointee for the North Houston Highway Improvement Project Steering Committee, currently. Proud to be on that one. I'm seeing Three and a half trend. years. I, I want to know how you have some. We'll get to that later in the amount of time. Um, the vice chair for the Walkable Places Committee at the Houston Planning and Development Department. Became uh, the chair about a year ago. Wow. Uh, the planning commissioner, and this is how I know Bill, Commissioner Baldwin. Um, the planning commissioner, uh, you are the appointee by Mayor Turner for the executive committee um, on the transition committee. Uh, you're the co-chair for the quality of life committee. You are an advisory group member for the MLS Advisory Group and Governmental Affairs Advisory Group. Again, I... I, I stay busy. I, I think so. Um, I've got my fingers in a lot of ponds over here. I, I mean, you are the, you're on the board of directors for the Houston Heights Association. You're the co-chair for the World AIDS Day Luncheon at the AIDS Foundation Houston. Um, you are president and leadership council for Music Doing Good. I mean... I'm seeing here that you were the Huntsville ISD Board of Trustees from 1985 to 1991. Twice elected, served for six years. You were the youngest school board member in the state of Texas at the time. In 1985, I was. Wow. Fresh out of Huntsville High School. I wasn't even born until 1986. I just <laughs> put that out there. I mean, wow. I was an overachiever as a small child also. I think that's an understatement. So we'll move forward to the awards and recognition. Mario? So you mentioned a, a lot of great service uh, that Bill has done. You know, he's been recognized for that uh, in a number of ways. In 2009, he was the Corporate Citizen of the Year from the Heights Association, the top residential real estate professional from the Houston Business Journal 
from 2004 to 2012, wow. and then from 2016 to 2017. Uh, he was the leader of the year in 2014 from the Leader newspaper. Uh, he was awarded the John Wolf Community Service Award from the Houston Association of Realtors in 2016, was a 2018 commencement speaker at Sam Houston State University, and received the 2018 Lifetime Achievement Award from the Houston GLBT Political Caucus. So lots of recognition. Uh, and I can't, you know, let this segment go by without mentioning the Houston Relief Hub, um, because it's the entity in which Bill and I really got to know each other. When I started to work for Bill, uh, it was right before Harvey hit. So my first day on the job, actually, after I could get back into the city was at the Hub. And this was a, an entity he created after spending days at George R. Brown, one of the first people there after the hurricane to volunteer um, and just, you know, grew frustrated with the George R. Brown turning people away who wanted to help, turning donations away that needed to go to folks who were in need. Uh, so he got friends together, made a few phone calls and started the hub, which grew to an organization that still exists today. During its uh, peak, during Harvey, you know, we were helping hundreds of people a day who were lined up that needed items. And it was a no questions asked. You showed up, you got what you need, and you left. And, and we weren't sure what we were getting from donations, but folks from around the country answered the call. Folks from around the city uh, volunteered. And, you know, we grew to become the city of Houston's official relief effort, um, not just for Harvey, but for Hurricane Maria. Um, you know, Bill led an effort to get donations to Puerto Rico uh, in partnership with United and um, a, diff a number of other community groups. And as disasters have hit the country uh, since then, whether it's California wildfires, hurricanes in Florida or the Carolinas, uh, the hub has responded. You know, for the federal furloughed workers in the city, the hub activated and gathered donations and goods and, and helped the workers who weren't getting paid but still had to go to work. Wow. Uh, so it's it's been, you know, something that, you know, he really uh, created an impact. that has been an impactful organization still to this day. Yep. Uh, and you can't really talk about his service and his recognitions without mentioning the hub. I mean... Do you have a, a just a refrigerator full of coffee and Red Bull and I, monster drinks? I get up drinks. very early and get going. Yes, and I, I don't sleep much. So. Well, is it, you actually, so first, thank you, Bill. I, and thank you, Mario. Thank you um, phenomenal. I mean, your Houston is amazing, and, and we'll get into that and talk more about that. But, I, you know, for the format of this show, since it's our first show, I, th I thought we'd start with some opening questions. Okay. And these are anything goes questions, okay? So be prepared. Uh, question one. What is your morning routine? I'm a very regular person, honestly. I, I wake up early every day, and I do have a cup of coffee and a banana, no matter where I am. And then I read the local newspaper, wherever I am. In Houston, of course, would be the Houston Chronicle. And then the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. If I'm in Paris, I do the exact same thing. If I'm in Buenos Aires or if I'm in Huntsville. I, uh, this, uh, I, I re traveled recently. I read the Austin paper and then the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. I read the Marfa paper, then I read the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. Then I read the San Antonio paper and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. I'm pretty uh, consistent about 
beginning my day with that sort of information. And I usually do that between 6 and 7.30 in the morning and then start my day working sometime around 7.45. Yeah, I, I do a lot of research and reading about successful people. And one of the things that you pick up on is consistency. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have been that way for at least 30 years, well before my children were born. They have grown up going to get me the newspapers wherever it is that we're traveling. If we're vacationing somewhere, they get up and go to Savannah and find the local Savannah newspaper. They get up and go downstairs and bring me the New York Times. So, I mean, they just grew up with that, and they become people that read the local paper and then the New York Times as well. They read it a little more digitally and on their phone than I do. I actually like the printed newspaper itself, and so I prefer to read it that way. But I've just always done that. My father read the newspaper in the morning. I just developed a habit of reading the newspaper and and hope newspapers stay around for me to be able to do so in the future. Well, I was a paper boy, so... I was a paper boy also. We appreciate your service. Uh, So, speaking of reading, what, what was the last book you read? You know, I, re- I read a lot of books. I re- I, at any given moment, I probably have seven or eight books going on, but I did just finish a, a day or two ago Bill Clinton's uh, novel, Between Hope and History. And I, I'm, I'm going back and I'm reading a fair number of books from 30 and 40 years ago. This Bill Moyers book and uh, this James Michener book, which I just finished also. And, and they're studying America in the 80s or the 90s. That Clinton book was written in ni- 1996, in the middle of his, after his first term, before the second term. And it's on social responsibility, social community, you know, dealing with issues that we're dealing with dealing with today that that Moyer's book that I read last week it's the same thing the problem with women as you know in the me too movement the problem with race the problem with healthcare the problem with education the problem with crime the problem with inequity we keep writing about this and we know the problems and decade and decade and decade and decade later we've made very little progress on any of these issues. And uh, the Klan book was really good because it talked about responsibility. We have a response. There are movements going on in the world today, and you are on one side of, of these deals, and you either do nothing or you do something. And, and I saw a great post today in, in, in Facebook. You know, where, what would you have done during the Holocaust? What would you have done during slavery? What would you have done during this particular moment of women's suffrage? And we all have a choice to do nothing or do something. And these books, uh, and, and I, I read a wide variety of books, but the so, Clinton book was very good about social responsibility, the importance of community, and yeah. the importance of building our, our, our whole country up. The social contract. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think I, I learned that you, you like autographed books. I do. I have a very large collection of autographed books. So name an autographed book that you don't have but you really want. You know, that's a tough one because I'll, I'll be honest with you, you can get almost any book you want autographed. Yeah, but uh, I just got my, uh, on this last trip, I just got received in the mail uh, an Obama signed book and I got one from John Kenneth Galbraith. I had written John Kenneth Galbraith when I was in junior high school and he wrote me back on inflationary practices in the 1970s. So he had written this book about the stock market crash of 1929 and it's just reflect, and it's a signed first edition and it's a study of how we're going to go through economic turmoil here as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic or whatever. So I, I am very proud that I, I reach out. I have tons of James Baldwin's and Maya Angelou's and my 
largest collection is Roald Dahl, uh, an author that I wrote when I was in the third grade, and he wrote me back. But So that's a tough question. I guess if there's, and, and I have almost all modern times. I don't have, you know, I don't go back forever, but I think uh, if there was one that I would like to have, it would be Benjamin Franklin's Poor Man's Almanac. Uh, that's a good one. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I don't have such a thing, but I, I love Thoreau, and I love, you know, all great American literature. I always wanted to be the great American novelist. I don't get the opportunity to do that yet, but I mean, you you may, I, you I may, may, you I may, may, you may. We'll, and we'll so talk about far, that. my day job pays more than a novelist we're, does. We're, <laughs> we're going to have a part two where we can we can dive deep into that issue. Um, so n- the next question, we're going to kind of transition into the, your Houston. Um, why and how did you come up with the name your Houston? I had been doing a fair amount of volunteer work, and thank you for the introduction and, and the recognition, but most of that was just finding my passion, finding a reason not just to make money but to make a difference and to try and offer back. And the more I was doing that, I was seeing people passionate about so many different areas. It is an amazing attribute of the city of Houston. We have thousands of organizations that are doing amazing work from children's health care and immunization to, you know, park advocates and art advocates and dog advocates. And so what I was trying to do is arrive at a way just at a very local level. I mean, we really only focus on things that a city council member, a school board member, or a county commissioner could vote on in the next six months. We, we don't tackle high-level things. Not that those things are not important, but there are other people focusing on it. We wanted to be more impactful immediately. And it was really about every conversation that I was in, no matter where I was in the city, what is it that you love about Houston? What is it that you want to see different about Houston? What is it that you want to do to make Houston a better place? And so your Houston was really the basis of adding those voices together with other like-minded individuals to make that meaningful change. So it wasn't ever about what I wanted to accomplish. It was what about you wanted to accomplish and you and others partnering together so that together we continue to make this city a place that we all love better for not only ourselves, but for future generations. So you mentioned local quality of life issues. There's a a housing policy that the organization has put forward for the audience. What, what is the summary of that housing policy? Why is it important? We look at certain issues uh, and see what we could, how is the current public policy impacting our lives and what you could do to change it. So I looked as a member of the planning commission, I've been saying we have a rule that's 27 housing units per acre. So on an acre of land, you can only put 27 houses. That was really a compromise. So on a standard 5,000 square foot lot, like in Montrose or the Heights, you could only put three townhouses in that 5,000 square foot lot. So that was one of the reasons they arrived at 27 units. What I was seeing on that same acre of land, though, you could have 300 apartments or 300 condominiums, but only 27 single-family houses. And if we look around the city, we can see pretty much what that equates to. A three- or four-story townhouse with a common drive that's priced somewhere between four dollars to $600,000. What's funny to me is that in my industry, I see people buying... 1,000 square foot bungalows or 900 square foot bungalows, and they're willing to pay four, five, six hundred thousand dollars, maybe even seven hundred thousand dollars in Westview for one of these bungalows. 
I would venture to say if you enlarge the quantity of houses, single family that you could build, it seems unfair. The current policy favors apartments and condominiums, right? That's what it's doing. Or it's inflating the value of single family housing such that first-time homebuyers can't afford $475,000 for a townhouse. By increasing the density in certain areas, never trying to get rid of anyone's deed restrictions, not, and, and we are huge fans of minimum lot size and protecting existing fabrics of neighborhoods, but there are large tracts of lands that are no longer going to be used the way they've been used before. So take the larger industrial tracts, large vacant tracts of land, and let's pilot and put in greater than 27 units. And my thought was, along with other scholarly people that we've been working with, if you made more units, they would be smaller. So we could build 1,000-square-foot homes on this acre. We could probably fit 47 of them, and it would lower the price of single-family housing down to 179000 where it wants to be. So we could make the city more affordable by altering the city policy, which is making the housing unaffordable for the majority of Houstonians. So that's an example of one of the policies, increasing the density, not indeed restricted uh, and not in minimum lot size areas, and not even just dealing with single one lot, 5000 Take tracts of land greater than one acre, and allow them to have greater density than 27 units. We believe it would make Houston more affordable for more Houstonians. You know, one of the things I, I found interesting, um, and, and I, you know, for me, my background, I'm a real estate attorney, so we got some real estate-minded folks here, um, was that Portland, which, you know, is, is recently passed an amendment to their, their zoning that allows accessory dwelling units. So now they, they allow, right, one ADU per single-family residential property. In Portland, 70% of the property is single-family residential. That was a huge win for them. That was a huge victory to get that one ADU. In Houston, you could have a duplex plus an ADU as it currently is. Right. And so that's one of the things I don't think people realize. Houston has that flexibility due to the fact that we don't have zoning. No zoning allows you great opportunities to, to try some of these things. And like I say, we can learn from other cities and we can implement them here. And we ought to be able to do so quicker. I mean, is there anything else other than density that we could do? For affordable housing? Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing we have is land, you know. So if we can take this land and find a way to make it more, uh, not necessarily developer friendly, because I think the world thinks the city is already too developer you know heavy and so the, the developers always uh, you know ahead of the curve when it when it comes to things but we've just got to make you know like i say the ability for people to better utilize the land speed it through we we, we don't allow you know we don't allow little modular houses we don't allow these tiny houses we don't allow mobile homes there's a lot of things that have been very restrictive but i think a lot of people there's plenty of vacant land in acres home or in independence heights or in the near north side or the east side where we should be able to pilot a few of these other areas and i think you'll see you know even with the pandemic and the way that covid 19 is working i mean people want to be outdoors more i mean they want greater flexibility they might need their I mean, how many of us have an aging parent that's now staying with us 
wouldn't it be nice to have them in their own little space, maybe 800 square feet in the back of your house? I mean, I'm seeing yep. in my practice where attorneys, instead of going to their office downtown, they want to put an ADU in their backyard so that they can have their office, right. um, you know, away a from the kids and a little bit. You know, yeah. But, but yeah, we, we're going to have to have greater flexibility. And, and if you can't do it on your property, why not have someone like your neighbor build it and you lease it from them? Right. Right. And, and so... Uh, but you know, density, is density is clearly an issue. It's concerned about over parking, concerned about someone parking in front of their house. I mean, there's the, the deal with the pack. We engage, we empower, and we educate. So we're having to educate the city council members and the county commissioners about why you would want to do these sort of things. Where's the pushback going to be from super neighborhoods or neighborhood alliances or groups that aren't going to want a bunch of strangers, you know, parking in their subdivision because they're used to a certain amount of lifestyle and uh, the lifestyle is going to change in the urban core. It is just going to evolve and we're just going to have to find a way that we can live in harmony with more units yeah, I was and more ask, people. I was going to ask you, since you said earlier, you read the newspapers from all these other, which by the way, other than Houston, what, which city has the best newspaper? Well, I mean, New York has the best newspaper because it has the New York times or whatever. And so they're, they're doing an amazing job of just creating things. But yeah, and I do love the Wall Street Journal. I love the Wall Street Journal, not for financial information is what you would think it would be for, but for lifestyle. Their, their Saturday newspaper, which has this review section and mansion section, and it's talking about commentary on racism, commentary on density, commentary on leadership. What is it? I mean, history, how have we learned? What have we learned from history? I mean, there's pretty amazing things in the Wall Street Journal as well. But the Washington Post, I mean, you've got here, you got one of the wealthiest people in America over here running the Washington Post, and they're able to uh, have an independent lens that's probably important. Newspapers are under assault, as are most industries, certainly the magazine and publishing industries, uh, between the digital and the printed uh, especially, but you've got to have independent journalism. The country, America, was based on independent journalism, the being able to call out tyranny for tyranny and being able to point out things like racism or the suffrage units or the AIDS crisis. And so I think independent journalism is an important factor in just the American culture and cultivating that. Uh, and even if it's just covering the different foods and the cuisines and the you know, the, the whole food culture is fascinating. And to read about it from different, you know, perspectives of different cities, it's pretty interesting to see what happens there. So, so speaking of perspectives of different cities, when it comes to planning and it comes to the missing middle and affordable housing and density and all these great things as it applies to single family, right? People want their space now in the current times with COVID sure. and everything. What city would you say gets it right on those issues? I think the cities that regulate less, you've seen where uh, largely regulated cities like New York City, they, you take Brooklyn and you remove some zoning and all of a sudden you're in, you've, you've uh, made it less affordable for the average person that was there for three generations in advance. And I think you're seeing that in many, 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 many cities. So you want less regulation because you can have more rapid redevelopment, but you've got to find a way to make these cities reflective of their past and make them affordable for everyone, not just the uber wealthy. You look at London and New York and LA, and if you're not a billionaire, you can't afford to live there anymore. And I think you lose your soul when young people or immigrants or beginners can't find a way to home ownership. And part of the problem with our country is, and it's part of racism, it's inherently favored 
white, middle-class, well-educated families continue to be the recipient of, of housing policies that have favored them and haven't favored people who have been on the edge or have been in a different sort of industry or something. So I, I think all of these cities are learning to regulate less. Parking is a, is a prime example. We go through this car culture of 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and the car is king. And the, one, the cities that have less regulated parking have actually found greater diversity and greater use of their facilities. Where in a Houston, we would tend to favor large parking requirements, which means you tear down everything that's there and you build a big parking lot. And but that's, you wonder that's why. not like downtown though, right? <laughs> well. You wonder why we have a flooding problem and a climate change problem and a density problem. It's because we've got a lot of surface parking lots because that was what the culture wanted. So you I think talked, it's evolving. You, you made some really good points about housing policies favoring one group versus another, home ownership. Another issue and initiative that your Houston has is around disclosure and flooding for folks that are renting. Yeah, we noticed, uh, of course, through the hub's work, and you see the inequity going on. And the real estate industry, uh, Houston Association of Realtors, we immediately put a notice on of houses that, that flooded on the multiple listing service. Although there was great pushback there to remove it as quickly as possible. Why would you want to show a house that flooded? Well, I think that's pretty good information. We had seen that for selling of a home, the disclosure of flooded houses, while it's not perfect, is at least you know, better. 53% of the residents in Harris County are tenants. They are not in home ownership. And they, and what we were seeing after the tax day flood, an apartment complex flooded, they got some money, they fixed it back up, they rented it. Those very people flooded several months later during the Memorial Day flood. You kick them out, you remodel, you put it back in there. You never have to disclose that you flooded at tax day, Memorial Day, and you put someone else in there usually the least among us, usually people that have high credit card debts that go out to Target and charge their shower curtain and their rug and their dishes, and they go to Mattress Mac and they borrow money for a bed, and it floods, and you know what? They still owe for the bed, and they still owe for the shower curtain. They still have the same credit card debt, and they don't have any place to live. They had no notice that the place that they were living in was vulnerable to flooding and had flooded many times before. If you're Mother moves here from New Jersey, and she goes and rents a house in Lakes of Eldridge that had 10 feet of water in it just two years ago. Wouldn't you want to know that? Wouldn't want you want your mother to know that she had a certain level of risk? Sally Hall in <laughs> Iowa. Mom, I love you if you're listening. Uh, our home, actually, the home I grew up in would flood every yeah. two times a year, actually. The snow melts, and then it would do it generally going into, you know, fall. Um, it was not a great situation at all, but we lived there and we were there for, they're still there today. Um, but yeah, I, I think we see this time and time again, Houstonians and everywhere. If you look at any short behavioral memories. economics, short-term memories, short -term memory. right? It hits two years later, kind of thinking about current times, other issues. You're struggling with your job. You're struggling with anything. Uh, it's one of those things that you just may not have done your, your homework on that. Your and Houston was working very hard at the state level to get this statewide disclosure for tenants. We even had the backing of some fairly large entities, even like the Houston Association of Realtors. We failed at the state level, so we think the next logical step is for the city of Houston and Harris County to adopt this tenant notification for housing risk for tenants, as well as past indication that you'd flooded before. So we'd like to see the adoption at the city and the county of tenant notification, the same notification you would get if you were a home purchaser. Seems like a reasonable expectation.
And we were making progress before uh, COVID-19, and so we'll pick back up again with that just as soon as we can get the attention of the county and city officials. So Absolutely. someone's out there listening. They're, they're liking what they hear. I know you are. Um, how can they get involved? How can they be a part of your Houston? If you're passionate about anything in the city of Houston, we want you to join with us because what we're going to do is we're going to pair you with others that are passionate about the exact same thing. If it's air quality from East Houston to West Houston, if it's stray animals, if it's uh, leash laws, if it's helmet laws, if it's bicycle safety, if it's uh, impervious cover, we're going to partner together because we're not going to diminish any of these other groups that are already working in those things. We're going to band them all together so that we're stronger together so that we can go have a unified impact at the local level. So all they have to do is you know, reach out to Mario or through email or text or whatever. We will partner together a work group uh, that will then prepare white papers of information, strictly just data, information that we can then go use to educate the politicians that are there, and empower you with others to go make substantive change. But we have to have an end game. We want to know what is it that we really want to do. It's, it's not to say, I want less stray animals in the city. No, we want greater efficiency between the city and the county and stray animals. We want leash laws enforced. We want, I'm sure both of you have dogs. I'm sure neither one of you have license for your dogs. Uh, even uh, though, uh, actually, do we do. We do. We do. Because <laughs> Anne-Marie would license? not have it any other way. Yeah, we do. We do it every year. Well, every single year, Emilio Estevez Jr. is licensed. There you so, go. yes. People need to know that there is a license for a reason. And if we're not going to enforce the license rule, get rid of it. But we do have it for a reason so that we can identify where the dogs are and what the needs are that might be. So we want to make greater efficiency with stray animals and with, uh, you know, the no-kill sort of attitude towards these pets. I mean, let's treat our pets with common decency. If we will band all these organizations that are working independently together, we will make a stronger statement at the city and county level for better efficient services between them. The city and the county are not efficient when it comes to stray animals. And well, everybody's voice is important. And so to get involved, you know, some people will participate in a work group that produced a white paper that produced a policy recommendation. Others will speak at commissioner's court when they're going to adopt a flood notification for tenants or city council or lobby their uh, representative. Uh, there's a number of ways for folks to get involved. Because they so, can do so, it from their home. They can just be working on the information. If they don't want to be the advocate, they can they have the information and they can share the information through these white papers that we create that people can use as a reference point. So Mario, someone's listening, they're interested, they like what they hear. How do they find us? If you're on Facebook, you can find us at Your Houston. We have a Facebook page. If you're on the internet, we have a website right now. It's yourhoustonpack.com. And uh, you can find all of our policy papers. We have uh, six up and published. Uh, we're going to be working on more uh, this year. Uh, we only really hit on two right now, but, but those are the two that we've made the most progress on. You can also sign up for our uh, email list as well there. All right. Sign up. If you're watching us on YouTube, go down to the subscribe button. Do it right now. Stop. No, actually do it. Thank you. If you're listening, uh, your podcast right now, if you're driving, continue driving, please. Don't, don't drive. But otherwise, if you're on your phone and you're not driving and you're in a position where you can actually go and like us and give us a five-star rating, please do it. Uh, 
Thank you again, Bill. Thank this you. has been awesome. And thank All you right. for the information. We just need people to know that we're out there, that we, we are working for substantive change, and we want you to join us, and we want to help make the city a better place for all of us. You heard it there. Bill, as always, it's an honor and a pleasure. Let me do a proper outro. This has been your Houston. Please tune in next time. Thank you.